0: Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark HelpsMeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I was reading my monthly copy of Friends Journal last week and ran into an article entitled, Before My Life Matters to You, Let It Matter to Me. And I was hooked by Rodney Long Jr. and his thoughtful reflections, so relevant to the search for a better future addressing racism and related issues in the USA. Rodney Long's years in social work, therapy, and in dealing with drug addicts, and his first-hand experience as a black man in Akron, Ohio, all inform his perspective on race issues. And we have the great good luck to also be joined by Salika Lawton, who has joined us on Spirit in Action a couple times previously. Salika does a lot of wonderful work. Among those works, she is a professor at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire in history and in women's gender and sexuality studies. Her service to the community is extensive and invaluable, with work on several boards and as part of Uniting Bridges. As an African-American originally from New Orleans, her insights are perfect for today's discussion. In fact, she, just this past month, received the campus Martin Luther King Social Justice Leadership Award. Salika Duxworth-Lawton joins us via Zoom from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, while Zoom is also connecting us with Rodney Long Jr. in Akron, Ohio. Rodney, it's so great you could join me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me, Mark. And Salika, welcome back. It's been too long since I've seen your wonderful face.
1: It's been too long since we've had a talk. Miss you.
0: And it's even better when we can be together in person. I really miss that part of life. For me, nothing beats a face-to-face. And as you know, Salika, I'm an inveterate hugger. Some people don't like that and they say, no, I don't. But if I had my chance, there's a big hug coming your way. And Rodney, you got to learn it and put up with it too, okay? (laughs) Fine by me. So the thing that kicked off this interview was when I read your article in Friends Journal, Rodney, called Before My Life Matters to You, Let It Matter to Me. I was very struck by the article, the deep thought. I thought that what you had put into it, the reflection, the information you were bringing was extremely valuable. And I imagine it also got a lot of crap thrown at you from some people who don't share the same viewpoint. You want to outline for our listeners from Northern Spirit Radio, what some of your points were, what motivated you to do the article?
2: What I was trying to convey was that the place I come from and the way I grew up, I had a lot of people who were trying to do for me and my community without me and my community trying to do some things too. And and as I became a part of the Quakers, I saw that they were doing a lot of that too, good work, necessary work, but it, it really felt... Like work was being done for us rather than work that we were being invested in a lot of times. In the article, I'm, I'm always kind of nervous if I'm being honest to speak openly about some of these things, because what I really wanted to convey was my community, the people in my community have to want to fix the problems of our community before we look outward for someone else to fix the problems of our community. So I was trying to convey that in the article, and that's always really tough to do to say, hey, I'm trying to say this in a caring, loving, thoughtful way. And it's not to blame anybody. I just want us to be responsible for us rather than looking for someone else to be responsible for us.
0: And some of the points that you made, Rodney, were you talked about children born into unmarried mothers. You talked about a lot of the violence that happens in black communities that blacks are the biggest killers of blacks, I think is one of the points. And I've heard those points from, shall we say, the right wing, from people who are, I think, saying, no, there's no problem. You guys be quiet. That's clearly not your perspective. So could you talk about what those kind of facts that have impelled you to take the risk of speaking up?
2: Yeah, by, by the way, let me say too that most black people do die at the hands of other black people, just like most white people die at the hands of other white people. That's an intra racial problem for most every population. What really caused me to speak up about some of these things, and you're right, these tend to be right-wing talking points, which I've sometimes been accused of, which is kind of funny because I'm a lifelong Democrat. I've always been a Democrat. I was even probably more green party through college, but I've I've certainly never been conservative. But I think sometimes we get afraid to talk about the problems in the community. And, And I think when you start to, you kind of get one of two things. You get, okay, this must be a conservative and he doesn't get it kind of thing. Or it's a white guy talking about it, so he couldn't understand. He's middle class, that kind of thing. I still live in the neighborhood that I grew up in, so I feel very much connected to and a part of all of these conversations I'm having. These aren't things that I myself didn't experience or the people that I'm still around don't experience. I won't say that that is the case for everyone, but in my experience, this is the case. So when I look at my neighborhood and I see, we'll start with kind of the single parent motherhood among Black children. The Brookings Institute did a study a few years ago on what it takes to move forward on the socioeconomic ladder. And And it tends to be things like don't have kids out of wedlock, don't go to jail, you know. Some of these these types of things, so in my neighborhood, when we have single parent homes, it's not very likely that you will get ahead just from a socioeconomic standpoint because it really takes two people in today's economic climate and really, I think that's probably part and parcel of a larger problem when we I know I'll catch a lot of crap for this, but to me, this all starts kind of with the sexualization of young black children. when I look at something like hip hop music. And we kind of focus on the lyrics of that. We see that sometimes young Black women are sexualized at a really young age. And I think it leads to the cycle of a lot of things, but single parent motherhood being one of them. And so I, I really wanted to focus on that and say, hey, I think we need two parents in the home, if nothing else, for the sake of advancing the economics of poor Black neighborhoods in reference to victims of violence at the hands of other Black people in my neighborhood. You know, there's shootings. I I think in Akron alone, we've had six shootings of people under 16 years old in the last, I think, four months or so, maybe five months. And these are problems that are happening in my neighborhood. And I'm saying we have to do something about this. You know, the only people that are going to fix these problems are us if we look for someone else to solve them or wait for someone else to solve them. They're just not going to be solved. And so I think that's something we have to take a look at as a community and start having some difficult conversations and say, we do have to kind of evaluate the way we have relationships in this community, the crime in our community, and why we might or might not be speaking up to police or uh, acknowledging that when we allow someone to commit this crime without speaking up, that we're contributing to it, that some of those kind
0: of things. All of that information is, I think, really valuable to be able to look at and to put on a broad palette as well. One thing that I want to caution our listeners from is I don't think that this automatically defines what Rodney Long is saying we should do about it. He's trying to tease out the facts that maybe will go into the mixer of how we come to a solution. But I wanted to make sure that our other guest today, Selika Lawton, who's very active uh, both with ACLU and she teaches at the university here in Eau Claire. She's a history teacher at the university. And she's also with an organization called Uniting Bridges is this organization that you can track via Facebook. I have a link on Nordenspiritradio.org. So I would love to have your input on what we've talked about so far, Salika.
1: Well, you know, I'm from Louisiana. I grew up in between Slidell and New Orleans, and I've done time in Columbus and Los Angeles. My husband is from South Central. And let me say this, New Orleans is the national leader for murder in the United States. It's not Chicago and has been since 1993. So I want to contextualize a little bit of what Rodney is saying Because, yes, you know, Blacks are more likely to kill Blacks. Whites are more likely to kill Whites. Latin are more likely to kill Latin. And if you look at the figures, that's the majority of what's going on. The biggest problem, though, with Black people have always tried to help ourselves. We have always been in self-help. You know, my mom was a vice president for the Urban League, for the National Urban League. My father was a teacher. I work with the NAACP now we've always fought for ourselves, and we've always had to police ourselves. The problem is when the criminal justice system will not help us and actually penalizes us for doing that and actually robs us of our wealth, it's pretty difficult to engage in self-help. There's limits to self-help, and as someone who grew up in the 80s hearing the self-help mantra, I, I know from experience that You have to have self-help with a certain level of anti-corruption. When in 2015, a crackhead tried to break into my mother-in-law's house, coming through the front door, my father-in-law scared him off with a rifle. And I asked her, did she call the police? Because, you know, we had to pay to put some bars on and stuff, and we wanted to do the insurance. You can't do the insurance without police report. Her response was, we can't call the police. They'll trash our house and they'll make up something or falsely accuse us to arrest us. She's in 77th Rampart, and the police there have been proven to plant evidence and to work for the drug dealers. So here in Eau Claire, where I live, I can look to the police to help me. In South Central, the police are allied with the criminals. And when the police are allied with the criminals, That makes it very difficult, if you're a law-abiding Black person, to be able to protect and defend yourself. A Black person who defends their home with a gun from an intruder is still seven times more likely, even if it's lawful, to be convicted by a white jury. You had two juries in Texas where a Black man defended his home from a home invasion. A white man 100 miles away defended it from a home invasion. They dropped the charges for excessive force against the white man in the exact same situation. They kept them for the black man. So disparate treatment by a corrupted criminal justice system that works with organized crime in our neighborhood is a problem. When you add to that, that disparate enforcement of the law robs black communities of wealth, that black communities are more likely to be overtaxed, Black communities are more likely to be petty over policed, but things like murder are less likely to be cleared, again, because of that corrupt connection between big city police and organized crime drug dealers. You saw the exact same situation in the 1910s in Italian neighborhoods and in German neighborhoods in the United States. It's not new. This is the result of corruption. It's easy for us to say that black people should fix black people's problems. And we've always fought to do that. But when our own government comes after us and helps the criminals to hurt us, that's a problem. You know, in Minneapolis and in Milwaukee, and I'm working with Milwaukee, when white criminals came in to burn black businesses, the police did not chase them out. Who was there to chase them out? Black people with guns. That was NAACP and Unicorn Riot. In my home in Louisiana, when the Klan would come rolling through, the police didn't protect us. We protected us. And we still have to protect us. So on one hand, we have a problem with, yes, there's a set of lower class blacks, and I call them sellouts, who engage in criminal behavior against other blacks because they know they can get away with it in this system. And you're afraid to go to the police because you will be penalized in multiple ways. In my home in New Orleans, the DA is actually putting the material witnesses in jail and holding them in jail longer than the people who are the criminals. So we have this system that's stacked against you. It's really stacked against you. And when you add that we have a divide, I'm living in a hyper-white environment. Rodney's living in a hyper-black environment, a segregated environment. That segregated environment is going to have a very different set of problems than mine here. Mine here is going to be the Klan. In his segregated environment, it's going to be organized crime They're two different environments. So we can't just say black people need to, black people need to. We have to be very nuanced and we have to be very deliberate in how we have this conversation. You know, even as we talk about single motherhood, it's not that these women want to be single mothers. It's that by shipping jobs overseas, the inner city has been deprived of jobs. Where the white rural is today with the meth problem is where the inner city was in 1990. You have to have jobs for people with high school diplomas so that young men with high school diplomas see something to invest in the community and feel like they can be married. Right now we have a set of young men who don't even feel like they can marry because they don't feel like they bring anything to the table.
0: I'm going to ask Rodney to jump in now. Thank you. Some wonderful points. And I don't really want to debate here because I think that all three of us want the same goal. And I don't see anybody as being oppositional to the other. But I want to invite further light from your side, Rodney. So Salika makes a number of good points. Uh, I'm sure a number of them you're going to agree with. How do we synthesize them into the well-being of our lives
2: I think that's a good word for it, synthesizing, because I wouldn't deny Salika's experience or the experiences of it. I believe that very well happened that way. Part of the reason I wrote the article is because I think my experiences are different. And what caused me to write the article, I think, was some of the blanket statements that we get about the Black community. And I try to, in a lot of my writing and a lot of my speaking, say we. There's not an othering happening here of saying the other Black people need to do this. I'm saying me in my own community as well. And so I believe that those happen that way. I'm just also saying that my experience tends to be different in that I don't think that it is happening that way. I think a majority of people in my neighborhood would say, yeah, something happened, I could call the police and the evidence wouldn't be pointed and, and things like that. And that's just my experience and her experience may be different. What I wanted to bring to the conversation and the reason that I wrote this article was I think that it's important that that side of the story be told too. That not every experience, similar to what Salika described, is happening for Black people. That not every Black person feels afraid to call the police or like they are being treated that way or that kind of thing. I wanted to say, and certainly to a group like the Quakers who does so much social activism, where this isn't the experience for everybody. And there are some people in our community who might look at it differently. And the way we approach that may look differently, but we all want the same thing.
1: We do all want the same things. We want to have a safe community. We want to be treated equally. We want to go to the bank. And if we have the same credit score as someone white, we want to have the same access to money. In many ways, you have to look at the Black community has really only have started as immigrants in 1972. We're in that third generation since integration. And yet we still, as Rodney is saying, there are some communities that are a little ahead and there are some communities that are not. In big inner city areas like Columbus, like Los Angeles, like Milwaukee, you have a giant problem with corruption. And it's not just racial corruption, but the easiest way to see it is in the segregated areas where the corrupt officials feel that they can get away with it. That's where you see it. But my experience in Eau Claire is going to be different. Rodney's experience in Akron is going to be different. And I don't want to demonize Black people who are living in an inner city like South Central, because we do have some Black people who I have delivered the butt kick to plenty of Black students. So what Rodney is saying and what I am saying is not in opposition but we are really looking at multiple audiences. Does that make sense? There's different audiences here for it.
0: Makes sense to me. I'm pretty sure that all three of us believe very strongly about the injustices that exist with respect to racial disparities. That is to say, there's a wealth disadvantage that people with African heritage carry because the discrimination has been there for some hundreds of years. I think that we agree that there are racist laws that exist in many places, a number of which have been decreased or eliminated or to some degree have been moderated. It feels like this past four years, though, is maybe some of that grew even greater. I don't know. That's my feeling about it. During the Trump presidency, there was more permission for racism to some degree, but I'm still not sure if the laws are better or worse. And I want your input, your experience, your firsthand experience. I'm doing this as a white person. No one's ever mistaken me for a black person. And both of you clearly have some European blood as well as African blood. So depending where which group you're in, you could be judged to be black or white or some mixture that people don't find you part of their circle. Right. So anyway, Rodney, I'd love some more input from you about number one. Is there a problem with racism? And number two, how much of that is worth demonstrating about? Are you you saying that really start at home, the bigger problems are at home. Fifty percent or more of the problem is right here in my neighborhood.
2: Sure. I I mean, I I think we could all agree that racism exists. I don't don't know that there would probably be anybody that would deny that today, that, that racism exists. I think where I probably get in trouble a little bit, maybe part with people in ways is to the degree to which that's a problem. And again, I'm only speaking for myself and my community in Akron, Ohio. I do believe that as a Black person in Akron, you are afforded all the opportunities that any white person next to you have. I actually live in a pretty diverse community. My daughter goes to Akron Public Schools. That's a pretty diverse school. You have schools like Bookdale CLC, which are, are literally 99% Black. You'll, you'll find a few white people. To schools like East, which are literally 50 50. So we live in a pretty diverse community. And I would hearken to say that the kids that go to those schools would find it hard to identify what racism looked like to them. And they would probably even say that it doesn't happen at their school. I've asked some of the kids, and they've said that black, white, and just out of curiosity, anecdotally, kind of said, hey, what's your experience here? And I think they have a hard time deciding what that looks like. And so I think where I probably part with people is certainly there's racism. I mean, there will always be people who dislike somebody else because of the color of their skin, just like there'll always be sexist, bigots, homophobic people out there. That part, I'm in agreement with everybody. I don't know that I agree that there is the larger extent that racism its what's keeping the minorities or the people from my zip code from succeeding because that, that's probably where I, I align with what you said, Mark, and that some of those problems I think start from home and it's and it's not necessarily racism that is stopping us from succeeding, but it's these other issues that we talk about.
1: And see I would say that, you know, the majority of blacks in the United States actually live in the South. And the majority of poor blacks live in the South. Rodney and I are privileged blacks. We're upper middle class blacks with degrees. And that's about 10% of the population. We're also lighter-skinned Blacks, and that's a privilege unto itself. He lives in a diverse environment. I live in a hyper-white environment. But when you go into segregated Black environments in New Orleans and in Los Angeles, I, my stomping grounds, and in Atlanta, it's a very different animal. Because, And this is why I said segregation in and of itself is a danger In an integrated environment, it's harder for corrupt officials and for corrupted individuals to get away with racism. Whereas in a segregated environment, it is easier because the people are less likely to be believed. You also see a consolidation of poverty. And when you have segregation, it's easier to target a community for corrupted practices like refusing to give those people services, refusing equal access. My segregated community in Slidell had opened sewers until 1993. They wouldn't do that here because if they did that to Blacks, they'd also be doing it to whites. Now, in New Orleans, I admit, I would be part of the elite. My children would go to all Black Catholic schools. They would go to Xavier. They might go to Harvard. I have relatives who've gone to Harvard. But I'm also aware that three blocks from where I went to high school, which was McDonough 35, the segregated school still in 1981 for the Black elite was a school for the Black Kids for the Projects, John McDonough. And those kids didn't have the same opportunities. While we share a skin color and to prejudiced whites, it doesn't matter how you know assimilated I act, etc., within these systems, our class matters. Rodney is talking about really, in many ways, a segregated community in Akron, and that he's living in the diverse integrated part, but I've taught those kids at Ohio State as a part of the Young Scholars Program. There is a segregated set of communities there where dysfunction becomes normalized. And where you have some governmental programs that, I'll be honest, have perverse outcomes. If you are on welfare, you can't have a man in the house. You can't be married. If you get married and you have two smaller incomes, you can't get food stamps. So we have perverse incentives in the programs that are meant to lift people out of poverty and encourage them towards self-help. And those perverse incentives prevent poor Blacks, and to be honest, poor whites here in Eau Claire. So some of it is race, and some of it is class, and some of it is geography, and some of it, I'll be honest, is skin color, because darker-skinned Blacks have a harder time in the United States. And so we we can't, there's no one-size-fits-all in terms of what's going on. For people in the inner city and segregated communities, It's probably 70-30. It's 70% discrimination and lack of access. For me up here in Eau Claire, let's just say when somebody's discriminating against me, it's a lot more obvious that they're discriminating. It's not going to be blamed on my class. It's not going to be blamed on my own behavior. So our geography matters. Our class matters. Our skin color matters. And what Rodney is saying is absolutely correct for the experience in the area where he's sitting.
0: Let's again repeat today for spirit in action. We're speaking with two people. Salika Lawton teaches at the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire in history. She serves on four boards right now. And I want to talk about the places where you are doing your service, where I think you're making this a better country. We're going to talk about that shortly. Our other guest is Rodney Long, and he's in Akron, Ohio. And I think some of your experience is particularly important here, Rodney, and that is you work in social work, your social work, mental health counselor as well. But I think you've got a very good perspective on the ground there in Akron. So fill me in some more. Again, I'm not interested in trying to talk each other down. I'm trying to gather as much light as we can get.
2: I appreciate that. I will say I particularly don't see Akron as segregated. Certainly not racially. I mean, socioeconomically, I think that's the divide. I think that anachronates positioned a little differently than a lot of other cities. We're a city of 200,000, a little bigger than that. And we are just now starting to form neighborhoods. You typically only had sides of town, north side, east side, south side. You didn't really have neighborhoods. That's really just starting to come to shape. And so what you had was you had neighborhoods that had money and the neighborhoods that didn't have money. And that was it. And, and the kids who were from the neighborhoods that didn't have money, felt the same regardless of whether they were white or black. And the kids that had money seemed to feel the same, whether they were white or black. I grew up in a part that didn't have money with white friends and black friends. And we certainly grew up on welfare, food stamps, governmental housing, governmental health care, all those kind of things. And my positioning of this was I never wanted to present this as a way to say, look at me. I made it. So can you. That That's really not what I wanted to do. My parents were addicted to drugs for a majority of my life. They've been clean about 15 years when I became an adult. But, you know, I I grew up with drug addict parents. I missed 100 days of school in the eighth grade. I failed out of college my first year. I faced probably everything that somebody could face. And I had a lot of help to get where I am. So that part can't be overlooked. The part that I I really wanted people to acknowledge in, in all of that was, if you're from where I'm from, it is not the racism that's holding you back today. I think it was important to acknowledge we might be holding us back. I'm not even saying that's the case for everybody. I'm not, I didn't like the blanket statements, which is part of the reason why I wrote the article. And I just wanted to say for some of us, it is that we are just not doing better. In my own case, that, that had happened at times, and, and certainly people are grew in case, one of the things I sometimes say is that you could drop a million dollars into my neighborhood and we would still all be broke because of the way we view money. And I think until we acknowledge some of those aspects that and that that's the whole point behind kind of let my life matter to me was like, I have to decide that I'm going to do better with the things that are given to me instead of saying I need more and more of whatever to do better and say, hey, we have to do better with what we've got. An example of that is You know, I know people, and to me, this seems like a way out. And so I think what I didn't like was us not acknowledging that there are paths to this and that it's not all the time someone's oppression or racism that's stopping it. Sometimes it's us. And I I think we have to acknowledge that. And I don't mean Black people. I just mean people in our situation. If you are from where I'm from as a young person, you will have every opportunity afforded to you to help you out of that situation. Your family will certainly be given free housing, free health care, free food, tutoring at school, programs designed to help lift you out of that. And one of the kind of arguments I have a lot of times with my cohorts are they say target the kids. You know, they say, hey, target the kids and we can help move them out. I say we can't keep targeting the kids because if their parents aren't on board to show them the way, we're going to lose them the minute they go back home. So for me, it's a matter of we're giving you everything we can give you. And if it's about how much people should get or how much, that's a policy discussion that could probably go on for 10 hours. But I think the larger picture for me was when I have someone next to me and they are getting free housing, free healthcare, free job programs, help to find a job, help to get a GED, we're saying, hey, we're giving you everything you need to succeed and get out of the situation. Now, if you choose not to utilize that, that's up to you. But I, I think it's important to acknowledge that the case is that sometimes we are giving people those tools and they are just saying, we're not going to do any better. And that it's not always the other case where they can't succeed because of someone else. That sometimes it is just us. And again, I don't mean Black people. That's not a political statement. Like, I just mean the people in my neighborhood. Sometimes I think we have to acknowledge that my neighbor simply might not want to do any better. And that it's not because he wants to and somebody's holding back. It's just because he doesn't want to.
1: Again, here, I'm pushed to class. And I think Rodney is talking about class. But he's also talking about the ways in which we segregate class. And and, and it also goes to mental health, can create a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, if you have parents who aren't getting you to school, let's say you miss 100 days of school, you get held back. It's very easy to get into a mindset, well, screw school, I'll go do something else. But there is no something else here in this country. You need to get the high school diploma. To be able to go into the military or to go to trade school or something like that. And I think Rodney's absolutely correct. We have to focus on the adults because we do have a pop culture, and I talk about that, that glorifies a certain set of dysfunctional stereotypes. The hypermasculinity of the coon, which would be the gangster rapper the hypersexuality of the video Vixen. When I was growing up, you didn't have those images on TV. We had Sugar Hill Gang. We had Roxanne the Educated Rapper. We were on the cusp. You know, 1981 is really when you saw Coke hitting these Black communities. And to talk about how the war on drugs has destroyed these families to talk about how the reinforcement and hyping of these images. For upper-class and middle-class kids, they have other people in their lives to offset. My daughter has her family, so she can look at these images, and for her, Cardi B is a cartoon. But for someone who is, say, caught in Watts, Cardi B looks like a way out. And that person doesn't have the sophistication to see and doesn't have the access to see the other images. So, so some of this is that we have a media that pushes a set of stereotypes that are... They are over-sexualized, as Rodney says. And it does not highlight the other modes of being if you are a person of color. You know, we, we also... But we also need to talk about poverty. And a lot of what Rodney's talking about, it's not just Black people. You know, and that's that role of mental health. That's that role of the loss of jobs. That's that role of a certain culture that you could get away with when the world was agricultural. But it doesn't work in this new world that's urbanized where... You really do need to have math to have a job. <laughs> and, and one of the things, it's it, where he is, it's black kids he's going to see. Mark, you know where I am here. The victims of meth tend to be mainly white. And they too catch those stereotypes. The cash-rich rapper, the country stars who are dysfunctional. And they don't have the structures to help them. There's a lot of research that shows just having one adult in a kid's life to model a different way makes a difference so they're not surrounded by dysfunction. And that's why we have to focus on the adults because we have to help the adults to be able to see that accessing these things will be helpful. Poverty is kind of like addiction. You have to want to get out of it.
0: And my take on it is that Rodney's saying, yeah, it's like addiction. You have to want to get out of it. It starts at home. I want to ask some questions about society as a whole and how we find our solutions to poverty injustice, and that kind of thing. But first, I have to remind our listeners, you are tuned in to Spirit in Action. Northernspiritradio.org is our website On there, you'll find all 15 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find the stations where we're connected with. You'll find links to people like Selika Lawton. One organization that she's very involved with and doing great things with here in the Chippewa Valley, Wisconsin, where we're both located, is called Uniting Bridges. And I'll have a link to that on Nordenspiritradio.org. Rodney in Akron, Ohio, Rodney Long Jr., the website you want to look for is rodneylongjr.com. Again, I've got the link, so you don't have to memorize all this stuff. Just memorize northernspiritradio.org, say it to you over and over, use it as your mantra for meditation, and you'll come to our site and you'll find links to all of our guests. We've got great people providing world healing work, and that's why I have both Rodney and Salika here today. Also on our site, you can comment on these programs. There's a donate button, help us fund ourselves. We can't do it without you because we don't depend on corporations and we don't depend on government for our financing and please support your local community radio stations. I want to talk a little bit about that to Salika because Converge Radio is one of the places we have here in the Chippewa Valley, and I'm hoping Rodney has some great community radio stations there, which provide that energy, analysis, the news, and music that gives us center to a community. There's some 42 stations that carry our Northern Spirit Radio programming nationwide please support them by getting the news out, by building community is one of the best things we can do. And that speaks to an issue that I'd like to bring up now for both of you. And I would like Rodney to comment on this first. And that is, it seems to me that one of the important points in your article, again, I read it in Friends Journal a few days ago. I read it and it struck me. The article was called, Before My Life Matters to You, Let It Matter to Me. One of the items that you addressed in there, Rodney, was victimization culture. That is to say, people can say, I'm a victim. And when people think of themselves as victims, it seems to me that you're saying, and that I've experienced myself, people become disempowered. They depend on other people for solutions. They don't take the power that they possibly could have if they think too strongly in that direction. I've also heard people speak in a very different way about that, that victimization is really about, I'm going to take my power. So that's one thing. But I, I think that uh, in terms of unwed mothers or drug use, there's a fair amount of that free-floating in the culture in this country, not just for Blacks by any means. Already, Salika was referring to meth addiction in this area, which isn't a Black addiction and the crack epidemic of 1980s and so on. They tend to be connected with certain cultures but, in fact, they're free-floating in the air in the United States about how we are able to or not able to deal with problems. And so, Rodney, I've just rambled on for a long time. Could you ramble more cogently than I did?
2: <laughs> I can try. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and, and I may have mentioned this too, I don't think these problems are unique to Black people. I live in a zip code that is very integrated and diverse, and I see just as many white kids go through these things as I do Black kids. And I think that the addiction comparison to poverty is is very similar. I remember when I was training as a young therapist, I, I used to say things like, you know, I'm going to help empower these people. And he would say, how exactly are you going to do that? And I'd be like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm going to give them the tools. You know, I'm going to show them. I'm going to give them the tools. He'd say what if they don't want it? Or what if those tools don't work for them or any kind of thing? He said, how can you empower somebody if they don't want it? And that has always stuck with me because I used to always feel like I'm going to empower somebody. Like, look at me, Mighty Rodney. And then I started working in substance abuse. And I, and I worked in substance abuse for many years. And the thing that always struck me was how many people didn't want to be in treatment. They would come. And then, now, by the way, there were plenty of people who did want to be in treatment. That to me was a much smaller amount than the people who wanted to be there. I will say too, though, just because you don't want to be at treatment when you start doesn't mean you walk out feeling that same way. Plenty of people walk in and don't want to be there, but walk out being happy they came. But they would come in and they would say, I don't want to be here. I'm here for the probation. And I'd say, look, man, I'm telling you, this is what happens when you work the program kind of thing. You'd say, look, I'm, I'm just not ready. I don't want it. I don't want to follow the rules. I don't want to do what I have to do. I don't, whatever kind of reason. They just didn't want to. No matter how many times we showed them or they suffered the consequences, sometimes they had to bump their heads enough for it to matter to them. And that was an important part that my bottom might look very different than their bottom. And their bottom just may not have come yet. And when their bottom hasn't come, they didn't have any reason to stop. The consequences just hadn't been severe enough. And I see that in poverty a lot of times is that we learn to just be okay, to just function, you know, to an addict who has their hustle down. They're able to just function, okay, they're going to go out and they're going to make their $20 every day. They have no reason to stop because they got the, they figured it out. The same thing with poverty is people learn how to just survive. I'm a finance guy. I really love finances because I think next to drugs, if, if you don't get your finances right, it's one of the things that will really mess you up in life. And one of the things that kind of always bothers me about the poverty socioeconomics is how we spend money in poor neighborhoods. You know, we will certainly go out and buy $150 shoes, you know, as if it's nothing. We will buy an iPhone on payment plans, you know, things like that. And no matter how much you might tell somebody, hey, if you save the 30 bucks a month that you save on your iPhone, that's an extra 400 bucks a month. If you don't buy the $3 coffee every day, that's 21 bucks a week, you know, $84 a month. It just may not work for them because they just may not be in a place where they want anything to change because changing is going to be a lot harder than what they're doing now. They have just got comfortable where they are. And so I think it's a matter of what reason do I have to change? And I see this in counseling all the time. If somebody doesn't have a reason to change, to them, they just won't. And this is kind of like when somebody is overweight and they want to lose weight. And again, I'm generalizing a little bit for the sake of time in this example. But for a person who's gotten to a certain weight, I would I have a buddy who's about 3% body fat naturally, and I kind of hate him for it. But I would call him and I'd say, hey, man, I know I'm gaining weight. You know, I'm only 180. It's not that bad. You know, maybe I'll just accept that. And he'd say, no, don't accept 180 because the minute you accept 180, you're going to accept 190. So then I'd call him when I was 190 and I'd say, hey, man, maybe it's not so bad. He'd say, you're going to accept 200 and 210 and 215. And next thing you know, you're going to get to a weight that you don't want to be at because you kept accepting what you didn't want to. But it was just easier than changing. And that's what I see in poverty and addiction a lot of times The alternative is doing something that's really, really hard. And I'm not here to judge anybody for when they're ready to change, but it's just so hard to do the opposite that we've gotten used to being poor, barely making it. And we say that's a whole lot easier than challenging myself to do what's necessary to make it something
0: different. I want to explore something about the overall societal values. And for both of you, I'd like to explore the religious values that undergird your point of view. Sleeka, do you have some reaction to what Rodney has just said?
1: Well, I mean, there's a problem, and it's not just our community, with materialism. Kids get bullied if they don't have certain shoes. I mean, that's here. Kids get bullied if they don't engage in certain behaviors. Kendi talked about it. My kids talk about it. If you're a black middle class kid and you're surrounded by lower class kids who don't have the same material values, you will be harassed for talking white. You will be harassed for wearing hand-me-downs. You'll be harassed for certain things. I know here, again, we've had white kids who've had that same thing. And that's a, that part and parcel of this materialist culture that argues that your worth is the brand that you're wearing. But I think there's, there's something that Rodney's getting at that we both, because Rodney and I are saying the same things, we're just saying them in different ways. It goes to masculinity and femininity in a way. In middle-class cultures, and in Rodney's article, he particularly says as a group of middle-class people, in middle-class cultures, we have a vision of manhood that's positive and a vision of womanhood that's positive, and it has nothing to do with the materialism. And that, that vision of manhood is disciplined. It is intelligent and competent. It is protective of the family. It is aggressive when need be. It's the ability to be able to defend. And that vision of femininity is very similar. But there is a media culture vision of masculinity that is materialist. That's those tennis shoes. That is hypermasculine. How many women can you sleep with? That is aggressive. Who have you killed? Who have you hurt? How many people do you bully? How many people do you beat up? In history, we call it brutalism. It is a vision of manhood that is less disciplined and more violent. For the femininity, it is how sexual are you? How sexy are you? How much money do you get from men? What do you wear? Are your nails done? If we want the more bougie version of both of them, are you wearing the expensive suit and driving the expensive car? What do your nails and hair, and do you carry a Dooney and bag? When I worked in D.C., I ran into the more expensive one. I was wearing Payless shoes. I was on the metro. This one woman looks me up and down, and she's in the elevator with me. And, you know, we get up there. She thought I was a secretary. And then they introduced me to, this is Dr. Duxworth. She'll be the analyst on this project and project lead. Turned out she answered to me. So we have a cultural issue With masculinity and femininity. That has nothing to do with trans or anything like that. It is how do we support in people these positive ideas? Because I think what Rodney's seeing with the people who don't, they they don't want to let go of these luxuries. It's because they see that as the manifestation of them having worth. And we need to give them a different vision of having worth. A different culture that recognizes their worth, not because they're wearing big, ugly, yeezy shoes, which will never show up in my house because I think I've got a car that's probably worth as much as those shoes. My son's driving (laughs) it. You know, how, how do we help people to be at a place to be able to hear what Rodney is saying? And yes, we are not taught finances in the black community. While there is a fetishization of entrepreneurship, there's not really a discussion about investing. There's not a discussion about if you have savings, how do you use them? The older rural people know how to use that And Mark, you might know this, the envelope method of saving, where you have an envelope, you put cash in for rent. They know how to do that. And they know how to put some money aside in the bank for a little, but they're kind of afraid of banks because it's still in the 1930s.
0: You're talking about us old people.
1: (laughs) But they, in this world, there are certain times I'm going to have to buy somebody that latte to get the job done. I can't just not have the lattes because a lot of the work I do gets done in a coffee house. You know, if I've got the Chamber of Commerce guy there, yeah, I'm buying him a coffee. But that's an investment. And we are not taught, and this isn't just a black community. We are not taught what is an investment and what is an appreci- depreciating asset. A car is a depreciating asset. A new car is a waste of money. Because the minute you run it off that lot, half the value is gone. But for some people, you look at L.A. car culture Fronting in a car is very important to your self-worth. So we need to figure out ways to help people across race. It's not just one race, it's cross-race to be able to see worth within a culture that is not linked to materialism.
0: Let me make a statement that I would love to have your input on. I, I don't want to say I'm happy. No, that's not exactly it. I count myself fortunate that I was not born black in this culture, that with my same intelligence, drive, creativity, I think that the racism that's inherent in the air in the United States, almost every place, and may I don't know if that's true in Akron, Ohio, and New Orleans, and everywhere equally, but being black for me with everything else the same within me, I think would have been it it would have presented challenges there would have been not equal justice given me not equal privilege given to me not equal listening given to me that kind of thing i think that that's true that's my understanding that systemic racism does exist in this culture so everything else the same my skin's dark versus it's light as it is or hyper white as my beard makes me look now that I think would have worked against me. Now I might've taken that difficulty and I might've worked hard about it and become out even better than I am now. But I actually come from a family, a working class family. I'm one of 12 kids. My brothers and sisters refer to me as the white sheep of the family. The reason I'm the white sheep of the family is because out of the 12, I'm the only one to go to a four-year college I'm the only one who hasn't struggled with drinking, drugs, smoking, addictions. I haven't done any of that stuff. That's why I'm the white sheep. It's not because I make more money than the others. I have brothers and sisters who have more money than I do considerably. But I know what it's like to come up working class. And I don't talk working class. If you heard most of my brothers and sisters talking, you would hear the social class difference between us. I ain't got nothing to do today. That doesn't come out of my mouth. So anyway, all of that to get to the point where I think racism exists. And here's the other thing that maybe Rodney was trying to make as part of his article in Friends Journal called Before My Life Matters to You, Let It Matter to Me. I believe that if I believe I'm a victim, it will disempower me, that my outcome will be better if I believe that I'm not a victim. And you can contrast that with the fact that I believe that racism does affect the outcome. But if I believe that racism is controlling my life, I will limit my own ability to overcome the drag on my outcomes that is caused by society. I don't know if I said that well at all, but it is part of my perspective. And I would love the both of you to help me get closer to enlightenment.
1: I'm going to throw something at you. In my experience, people who have believed that they are a victim use that as an excuse to abuse others around them. You know, I'm a rural black person. I have not really encountered very many people who are of my race who would play the victim card. The few who have, have done it as a measure of getting power. I've seen far more whites do it, and they use it as a justification of power or discrimination. But to me, seeing yourself as a victim gives you permission to abuse people. So I haven't seen people who see themselves as victims feel disempowered. What I've seen them be is bullies, mean to other people. And there's a strong level of addiction with the people who I've had to deal with with addiction in youth who use playing the victim as an excuse not to deal with that addiction. I don't know if Rodney has seen that on his side, but that's what I've seen working with youth.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I've seen it. I would probably say it the opposite way. Um, And again, that's not to discredit. I believe it happens that way as well. I certainly would never say it doesn't. I think, Mark, to your point, I I do see it happen that way. In psychology, we call that labeling theory. You know, it tends to be a self fulfilling prophecy that if I tell you, you are, you tend to live up to your expectations. If I tell you, you aren't crap. You start to believe you aren't crap. And so I really see it happen that way. And, and to me, that's, I guess that's part of why I wrote the article was that it made me really uncomfortable that what I was experiencing was this rhetoric that seemed to be that every Black person was experiencing this. And, and to me, that's, and again, I'm not saying people were saying that, but that's what I was hearing. The, the rhetoric as if we're all under attack, we're all oppressed, we're all victims in this situation. And I just felt like I'm not a lot of the people I know are not. And I think it's a dangerous message to send because the people that I know, what they're hearing is, hey, I'm never going to get ahead because I just can't anyways. I, I still know people that say that today. And sometimes I say to them, do you recognize where you're at today? Like, Do you recognize the standing you have? Like, I'd say you're anything but victimized at this point. You know, You're about as upper class as they come. And I've been lucky enough to know many people who've come out of my situation to be really, really successful monetarily, but also really successful not monetarily. I don't believe, so like I I don't believe I hate kind of the hustle culture, the entrepreneur mindset. I'm not a fan of that. What I am a fan of is hey, there's a shortage of blue collar jobs. And if you just stay in school and go to trade school, we can help you get out of the situation of extreme poverty. And into maybe a working class family, which may not mean $100,000 a year, but maybe it means $60,000 a year. And that's a heck of a lot better than whatever they pay at McDonald's, those kind of things. So I was really concerned with the message of, hey, if you're, if you're Black, you're under attack, because I really felt like I wasn't. I was actually feeling like, and the people around me too, what we were really getting was a lot of advantages, and we weren't taking care of those. We weren't fostering those advantages. And certainly, I think it has happened that way, where someone has their thumb on the victim and they're using that power. I had just seen it happen the other way too, certainly in my own family with the people in my community to where if you send the message, I am a victim, they tend to believe that, which in turn, and I know I may catch crap for this, but gives them an excuse to then play up to that. And, and I see it in psychology a lot that people tend, in sports too, as a sports guy growing up, people tend to live up to the expectation that you set for them. You know, I think similar to this, one of the kind of things that if you have kids, you know, I don't think anybody ever tells their kids, well, you're not going to make it, buddy. The bar is here for you. So you really need a lot more help than the kid next to you. I want to tell my daughter, you can do whatever the heck you want to do. You may have to put a lot more work than the other kids because you may not have all the intrinsic skills that they have. And it may take a lot of work, but you can still get there. And I think had I sent a different message, that's what kind of scared me, which prompted me to write the article.
0: We have to leave Rodney Long Jr. there, but we'll continue with this discussion next week. We have a link to Rodney and his Friends Journal article, Before My Life Matters to You, Let It Matter to Me, on the northernspiritradio.org website, and we're also linked to Salika Ducksworth Lawton on our site, including a connection to the Uniting Bridges organization on Facebook, and to uw Clare, where Salika is professor of history and of women's gender and sexuality studies. They'll both be back next week when you again join us for Spirit in Action.